Marlene, I just want to know, uh, in the background, do you have one of the gremlins from Ghostbusters in that freezer? Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, 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 yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> Welcome to the Geek and Review, the podcast focused on innovative and creative ideas in the legal industry. I'm Marlene Gaybauer. And I'm Greg Lambert. Well, Marlene, I have to say it sounds much more natural when you do the introduction <laughs> than when I do it. So I'm, I am glad you are back to do that. Me too, because I know this spot is a real hot commodity. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, this is episode 99 and the last episode of 2020. Woo. And I say freaking amen to that. I'm with you. And get an amen from the pews over here. Yes. Um, all right. Well, for episode number 99, we brought in a couple of thought leaders on the issue of legal technology and innovation. So we brought in Ostler's Kristen Hodgins and author and former Thomson Reuters and O'Connor's editor, Jason Wilson, to join us and dive deep into the discussion. So we cover a lot. So I think everyone will enjoy the diverse perspectives. Yeah, be sure to stick around for that. But now let's get to this week's Information Inspirations. So Marlene, I'm going to talk about one that uh, I don't think it's it's actually the first time that I brought this up, but this was actually on National Public Radio, and so it's getting a broader audience right now. And that was they published an article entitled "Waiting for the LSAT is Too Late for Improving Minority Representation in Law," and in it, Nina Totenberg and Marissa Manzi point out some of the glaring shortcomings of the pipeline into the legal field, and quite bluntly, the, the legal industry, from law school to those passing the bar to practice, nothing looks like the country in which we live. The authors point out that there's a structural problem that goes far beyond the time when students are contemplating taking the LSAT to get admittance into law schools. There's the mentoring phase, there's the cost involved, there's the scheduling, there's the admittance process, and all of those are more tilted toward keeping the status quo. And it reminds me of this discussion I had when I was doing my firm's podcast. We had Dean Leonard Baines on from the University of Houston's College of Law, where he was talking about how he established a pipeline of diverse talent starting early in a college student's career. But even he admitted that it really needs to go back to high school and junior high school to really begin breaking the barriers that are in the minority and underrepresented students, you know, for them to consider and prepare for a career in the legal field. Yeah, this is so true. And uh, it will be a real challenge, I think, for those involved in the education field to really address this at that stage of the game in, yeah. in an effective way. Well, it's um, not a problem that started overnight, so they're not going to be able to fix it overnight, but they, you know, they need to start. That's true. I'm glad that issue is is getting a little more press. I don't know. Maybe they've been listening to our podcast and some of our guests. <laughs> that, that's where they got the idea. <laughs> well, Nina, if you're listening, yeah, yeah, leave us a review. <laughs> <laughs> Please like us. Subscribe. <laughs> uh, so this being the last episode of the year, I'm going to focus on the fun and the good. Good. And since it's gift-giving time, Samina Cluck, a friend of the podcast, posted a really great gift idea. There's still time as, as a, when this comes out for, for air. <laughs> you can still get a gift. 
you can get a tea set to support the Women's Bar Association of the District of Columbia. You can order the Ruth or the Sandra. And you get a mug, an infuser, two teas, salted chocolate caramels. Salted chocolate caramels. Oh, my God. And whipped honey. Whipped honey. Have you ever had whipped honey? That stuff is amazing. I have. It is really good. so good. You know, Greg, if, if I order the Ruth... It will add to my collection of my my magnets, which I, I believe you gave me, the RBG sweatshirt, and all my RGB pins on my denim jackets. Well, it sounds like that's what you need. Uh, yes. Although by this time, it, it might be a New Year's gift rather than a uh, That's a That's Christmas okay. Gift, you know, gifts I'm, I'm are sure always good it, right? to give, late or not late or just because. So, yeah. Feel, feel free to get that for me. <laughs> And continuing with the Ruth vein of conversation, I am delighted to report that the School of Law at Rutgers University is naming the old law school building where I worked as an RU grad student, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg Hall. The building is now a residence hall, and it's a 17-story neoclassical building in downtown Newark. That is not New York. It is (laughs) Newark. New Jersey. <laughs> um, Greg, did I tell you that I saw Matt Damon at the law school when I worked there? No, you haven't. Yeah, he was filming Rounders, which was not one of his best, but uh, we came back uh, after the weekend and the filmmakers had done things to the library that no one should ever do to a library. <laughs> so we had to put it all back together so it could actually be used. <laughs> but back to RBG. So the reason for renaming the hall is that Justice Ginsburg began her lifelong pursuit for equal rights and justice as a faculty member at Rutgers Law School in Newark, Newark, where she taught from 1963 to 1972. Well, my last uh, inspiration of the year is, you know, we talk a lot about Free Pacer. Free Pacer. (laughs) We talk about that here on the podcast. But there's another issue that librarians, reporters, and others run into with obtaining government information. And that is the Freedom of Information Act requests that are often unbelievably expensive. With a good bit of news on that front, the Office of Management and Budget, the OMB, accepted the American Association of Law Libraries' recommendation that federal agencies should consider librarians at educational institutions as eligible for fee exemption under the Freedom of Information Act or FOIA. Yeah, so um, just another good reason for anyone listening to the podcast to make that extra effort to be friends with your academic law librarians out Mm -hmm. there. So. Mm -hmm. Well, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to Emily Feltrin at AAAL for her efforts in getting this recommendation accepted. So yeah, thanks, maybe, Emily. Maybe, maybe the, some of these academic institutions maybe even have a service that maybe. You, know, you could take advantage of. Never know. Just, you know, just saying. I'm going to send this episode home with a bit of humor and baking advice. So thank you to Catherine Rubio of Above the Law for highlighting a absolutely delightful scholarly law review about pie. Now, are, if, are you if, hungry? If, if well, if if <laughs> if any if you know me, you, you know <laughs> that I have strong feelings about pie. So specifically, the focus of, of this article is on the burning question of extra crispy crusts and filling ooze in pecan pie. Now, is it pecan or pecan? Uh, I think it depends on how deep in the South you are. I see. Pecan. 
I will probably move between both in this paragraph. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. so my, my apologies to everybody. Um, I love pie, and although I'm not a huge pecan pie fan, um, I, I will say, though, that I do like Three Brothers chocolate bourbon pecan pie. Mm-hmm. That stuff's pretty wicked. Um, as a baker, I can appreciate the problem. You know, how do you get the filling cooked thoroughly without burning the edges of the crust? Now, you could get a little apoplectic about this if you aren't careful. The article is published in the inaugural Kansas Journal of Confections and Winter Pastries and is written by Dean Stephen Mazza at the University of Kansas School of Law. Now, Dean Mazza dishes out a mouthful, particularly about who qualifies as a pecan pie baking expert. Here's an excerpt of one of his footnotes. The author prepared a pecan pie using the instructions provided in this article and delivered it to Dr. Barbara A. Bickelmeyer, currently the provost of the University of Kansas and formerly an employee at Tippin's Pies. The provost responded with a thank you card stating, this is one of the best pies I have ever had. Shortly thereafter, the provost's colleague, Linda Lucky, sent the author an email stating, the provost said it was the best pie she ever ate, more than once, so no, she really, really liked it. The provost qualifies as an expert witness as to pies. See Federal Rule of Evidence 702. So if you're hungry for a slice of something tasty in your law review articles, check this one out. I have to admit, that's a, that's an interesting topic for the law review article. <laughs> <laughs> It was it was good and, and you you know you get you get a recipe out of it. Well, that sounds like the perfect way to end this year's information inspiration. Legal tech and legal innovation are very much in the eye of the beholder. We asked a couple of thought leaders with their own perspectives to jump in on the topic and give us their insights on how these ideas play out across the legal field. We thought we'd take on a big topic this week and have an open discussion on what exactly is legal tech and legal innovation and how it's viewed from the solo small firm environment, from big law, startups, to even big vendors in the legal field. And so to do that, we brought in a couple of colleagues and friends who I think it's pretty fair to say aren't too afraid to challenge some of the traditional thinking that's out there in the legal tech world. First up, we have Kristen Hodgins, who's the Project Manager in Legal Innovations at Osler in Toronto, Canada. Kristen, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Thanks for having me here today. And Jason Wilson is a legal publisher, formerly with Thomson Reuters and O'Connors, and he's based here in Houston. Jason, good to talk with you again. Thank you. Kristen, we're going to start with you. When we're on Twitter and we see the hashtag Legal Tech, What immediately comes to mind for you? Do you feel like an open conversation or is it the usual suspects out there talking amongst the other usual suspects? Yeah, so I think there's a few issues with the legal tech hashtag becoming the platform of choice for at least a subset of legal tech discussion. But at the same time, we don't really have anything better. Some of the other forums that are available through professional industry associations are exclusive and require paid membership. But on Twitter, there's probably, I don't know, a few hundred key legal tech players, and that's a very small subset of people working in that space. 
I think it's quite challenging to join in that discussion if you're an unknown quantity or you're new to Twitter. You might also have a workspace that prohibits you from engaging on Twitter in a professional or quasi-professional capacity, particularly if you're working in the public sector or the courts. And I think there's something with the Twitter algorithms as well. The frequent flyers who tweet about legal tech and have their posts get traction usually have more followers. Um, they tend to get more engagements with their tweets. And they're also more likely to engage with other users who are well known. I mean, I, I know actually a lot of people who, you know, actually have a lot to say about legal tech and innovation and they're not on Twitter and they choose not to be on Twitter. And so we're kind of missing out on 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 that discussion. Uh, also, a lot of times people post but don't necessarily engage further. You know, I can say I'm often guilty of that, but, you know, so you're not really getting a conversation per se every time. Yeah. And I, I actually remember back, geez, when I guess this was in the late 90s or early 2000s, like with the bar associations, we had our own kind of a social network at, at the time. And there was a subset of the tech guys and uh, well, mostly guys back then. Guys. <laughs> I know. You're I know. So Sorry. Sexist, Greg. <laughs> You're so sexist. And, and women that were, that were there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, and it, again, that was a closed environment too. And, and so I like your idea or I like what you, what you said that where else are you going to go? I don't think we can go to parlor to <laughs> maybe, maybe get a whole different thing, but no, uh, but we can, we, we all go to Substack. <laughs> we publish things. So but we can, we can go to Twitter. Like I found Kristen through Twitter and uh, so I've works. been, I've been on Twitter since 2009. I found Craig through Twitter. I found so many people in this environment. And while we as a legal community can say, oh my gosh, I want to be off Twitter. For, and, and don't get me wrong, I have disconnected from Twitter to try to just stop seeing stuff. I cannot deny the connections that I have made within this environment. And I think Twitter is great for networking. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I've met many friends in real life and online through Twitter and I've made a number of uh, professional connections and probably got my current position in part through who I am on Twitter. But the problem with Twitter is it's really difficult to actually have an in-depth substantive conversation, right? Twitter is so ephemeral and there's no way to track old threads. There's not really a record of it. And it's difficult to catch up on something that was said last night, let alone a week ago, if you're not always on it. So I think Twitter presents in some ways a very shallow representation of what legal tech and legal innovation actually is. Yeah, it's kind of the case of the disappearing tweet if you don't actually save it. (laughs) But Kristen, I got introduced to Canadian law through Twitter and bridged a border gap through it. And so I would say this is largely beyond the purview of what we're talking about. But I would say that Twitter allows us to jump uh, border gaps and and talk to people in different jurisdictions and form relationships in a way that is fruitful and uh, meaningful. Kristen, what did you do to, to break into you know, that club? 
Um, I think I kind of broke into the club back in 2017. Um, I had kind of a breakthrough presentation at the American Association of Law Libraries annual conference and met a lot of people in person there who I then followed on Twitter. And because they knew me, uh, they followed me back. But obviously, that's not really practical advice for a lot of people. Um, I would say if someone's starting out on Twitter and they want to be part of the conversation, have an interesting biography in your profile. Um, let people know who you are, if you can, who you work for, you know, where your views are coming from, and follow interesting people and start responding to tweets with thoughtful responses and post things that are more than simply retweets yourself. I think the biggest way that people can make an impact on Twitter and gain a following is through authenticity. Yeah, I, I was thinking more like uh, Marlene and I and just troll people. Just. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I actually uh, had the unfortunate uh, uh, task of scrolling through my following list to find someone, and Greg knows this, and I was surprised. It was much later that I followed Greg before I followed other really horrible people. Well, I'm, I'm not sure how to take that. <laughs> I'm not sure what to say. It's like, so, so you're, you're on the list of the horrible people. <laughs> well no, done. No, it's just it's kind of one of those things. Like, yeah, it's just like, it's a balance. Yeah. Well, well, Jason, let me switch gears uh, a little bit here. And so you've worked for a, basically it started off as a regional publisher and then you went on and you've worked for probably what is the largest legal publisher. So who has the advantage for producing true innovative products in the world in which we actually live in today? Um, I like to say that uh, Waxis has the advantage, right? You know, um, why you know, Lexus? Uh, Waxis, right? Mm. Lex, Les, Westlaw. Okay, Westlaw Le and Lexus. Okay, gotcha. Lexus. So, so why, uh, why Westlaw but and Lexus? I, I would like to say that they have the advantage in the sense that uh, they've provided us with some products that, as writers and researchers, we think are ah, oh, you know, these are so awesome. You know, like uh, statue compare, for example, right? You know, the things that we thought, oh my God, we would have these a decade ago, but we don't have, but we don't have them because again, data. So much of our lives as lawyers and as technologists or anything else is built around clean data. Man, I'm with Kristen on this whole issue of like, what is, what is the top of technology and how does it trickle down to serving those of us that can't afford lawyers necessarily, or at least can't afford the top of the line resources. I, I, th I think Wexis can create those products, but I don't see them trickling down their technology in a way that that makes it financially feasible for for the clientele that if if we want to serve those folks we can't and and even even if we want to serve uh, the marginal folks the, the folks that are above the line it's still hard it's still very hard particularly when you consider like e-discovery or anything else 
What about the small vendors? Uh, I mean, fast case, ca- case techs. I, I mean, even, I mean, even O'Connor's, uh, who you were with, there was. Uh, and oh, innovation I mean, is not technology, and so no, that's, no, no. Uh, and I, so, so you can yeah, be yeah, innovative yeah. and not have a technology stack that you're having to, to sure. build on. But who's writing? Who's writing uh, jurisdictional material? No one. Like Greg Lambert's of the world that can afford subscribing to practical law. Um, so you look at your practical law offerings and you say, oh, hey, um, what jurisdictional materials in Texas does practical law offer? Well, I mean, I would submit to you that it's probably not great. It's probably incomplete based on what I know. And you need people that are willing to sacrifice a lot of their life and their resources to write that content for you. And I told a close colleague the other day, I said, look, we are entering in a desert where um, there are going to be states where people like Texas, um, because I'm one of those folks um, that want to provide jurisdictional material uh, to them. And then there are going to be states where jurisdictional material is going to be provided. And you're going to hope that your Westlaw subscription or your Lexus subscription is gonna gonna lead you to to the correct sites, but uh, for the most part, it's not gonna educate you. And if if you're lucky to be in a state that has the right material, great. If you're not, too bad. So, Jason, just yes. um, this, I just want to know sort of what's your thought on on some of the things that that some of the big publishers are doing. Um, you know, we've had people on from from Lexus that sure. dealt. Uh, you know, they're doing a lot in the area of the rule of law in terms of you know assisting with developing apps. Um, I know other ones have, you know, basically put together sort of design sprints on coming up, you know, and sponsoring, you know, a lot of innovation with, with universities to sort of come up with uh, access to justice type of apps. So what's your thought about that in terms of these large companies sort of dedicating their resources to, you know, more access to justice? They won't. Okay, but they have. (laughs) They won't. I mean, I mean, and sure, and in name, I feel like that's the case. I think Chris and I are probably both on the same page here, and and I I would defer to her a little bit. But when we were in the what I would call big co, there was a uh, what you might call a design sprint, right? Where uh, it was. Uh, Man, there was an advertising type thing, and you really sure. want to. I mean, there's there's going to really, be advertising oh, as part man, of it. You want to you want to get your staff involved. You want to, oh, gee, how many Christmas? You want to you want to get everybody jazzed and and be a part of it. And they did a fantastic job. I mean, amazing what the the work product that they put together was amazing and got, uh, it was like a tide placed among, among the group. Right. But then reorg. (laughs) So like, what do you do in the face of a corporate reorg and 
the money dedicated to something then goes away. Like, how do you really um, motivate employees in that way? And that's, that's not my point. Like, my point right now is about uh, the things that we were talking about with Kristen is literally like, what are we doing to service trickle down A to J, right? Like, that's what I want to know because I'm dedicated to that. I write for that all the time. Like my job is to make sure that at some point I am delivering services to lawyers that can then service individuals at a level that doesn't involve the Lamberts and the Marlenes of the world where it's $400 a partner hour or 500 or whatever it is. It's literally just, hey, man, this is, here is your knowledge and you don't have to sign into a, an online service to, to figure it out. I think if we're thinking that providing uh, low cost legal materials to lawyers uh, is going to solve the access to justice problem or is even going to make a dent, I think we're missing the mark a little bit. And I think even um, having lawyers focused uh, in the center of access to justice is part of the issue itself. Yeah. Yeah. I, no, I, I agree with you. And, you know, expecting big law and large vendors to solve the A2J problem is crazy. That's just crazy talk to even think that that, yeah. because yeah. if that's not part of your core mission, then it's just, that's going to be wiped. I think Jason had a good point on that is once it cuts into profits or it takes a little bit longer than you really want to, or it's taking more people than you want it to, you know, the priorities go back to the business. Yeah. And I mean, if they're not getting something out of it, they're not going to be doing it. Yeah. And, and A2J is not a technology problem. No. So. No. And it's a me problem and it's a you problem, meaning the client problem. Like, how are we educating clients to say, hey, I am willing to help you uh, free or low cost. But it's also, I just want to make sure this isn't a Westlaw and Lexus problem. <laughs> this is, we're not talking about that. It's, it's not a vendor problem. No, it's a societal problem. It's a yeah. societal problem. Also, we should be having more pre-form forms from the court. We're like just like Greg dealing with we should um, have more like legal zoom for the for the court forms, you know? Yeah, exactly. Thank you, yeah. Marlene. Like, I mean that's that's what it is. Like, right? Like we we should be having the courts giving blessings on forms that if we want the types of automated systems working, then we should have them giving blessing on automated forms. So Kristen, since we're sort of on this topical area, let me, uh, I want to tweak the, the question that we, we gave to Jason a bit and, and ask you that, you know, if you think that that legal innovation has to be a top-down process when it's developed for for a large law firm environment and trickles down, or is it, is it better as a you know does it make more sense as the grassroots sort of process where it helps individual lawyers and grows in demand uh, to them and then takes over the larger market, you know is it better to scale it up or to trickle it down? 
I think it depends on a number of things. We can look at innovation from a micro level, so how it gets done within an organization. And then we can also look at it at a macro level, so how legal innovation moves throughout the whole industry. Uh, I can talk about the micro level. So that's innovation that happens within an organization like a law firm. And I even think how innovation happens at a law firm is very different than how it happens in a court or a government department or an in-house legal department even. So I think we need to be careful when we talk about legal innovation, what we're really talking about and who our audience actually is. But I think most innovation that is directed as a top-down initiative fails, uh, regardless of the organization, because it's done poorly. Um, top-down innovation often relies on a prescribed outcome without doing the kinds of research, design, uh, prototyping, and testing that is required. And I don't think legal organizations pay enough care and attention to the internal culture of their organization. And I think we often underestimate the power of staff at every level of the organization uh, to either champion innovation or to be an obstacle to it. One thing that we often don't do is identify those key influencers in an organization. And this is probably can be extrapolated to the industry as a whole, um, but we don't include people in our organization who have a shared interest in the innovation. So key influencers um, need to be participants in the innovation itself and therefore they'll have ownership over the outcome of innovation. But what should happen top down is leadership of a firm or organization modeling the kinds of behaviors and skills that are conducive to cultivating a culture of innovation in an organization. So that's things like forms of risk-taking, baking in failure points as a normal part of innovation, um, not treating failure as a negative, and giving staff the time and mental space for pursuing curiosities. Well, let, let me ask, uh, because a lot of times when you, especially on the local level, um, if you're not careful, you end up doing something that's very, what I've seen very commonly is that you solve a problem that doesn't exist. And so you get people that work on the technology and they get caught up in the, the coolness of it, of the, you know, hey, this, look, look at what this produces. How great is this? And it doesn't matter how wonderful that that product, you know, performs, if it doesn't solve a problem that the firm or the client or the court or whoever has, it's it's worthless. It may be super cool, but it's not practical. So how do you make sure that you're actually solving an actual problem and you're communicating that all the way down, up and down the, the chain? Yeah, it's tricky, particularly in a law firm model where partners have a lot of power and the kind of central organizational structure of an organization is fairly weak. So uh, you know, if a partner has an idea for an innovation, uh, which is often a solution and sometimes a solution in search of a problem, uh, it's very tricky to walk them back and get them to think about the problem, both in terms of what the root causes of the problem are. And that usually involves talking to a number of clients, but also whether this potential solution makes strategic sense for the organization as a whole. And I think that's something a lot of lawyers struggle with, because even within a firm, you know, to some degree, you have an independent practice, 
or you're part of a practice group, but you're not used to thinking about how a piece of technology or an approach or a decision might actually affect an unrelated practice area over there. So when you hear that legal innovation and legal technology can solve the access to justice problem, do you think that the innovator that's behind this is being sincere or are they just using it as a public relations tool? So Kristen, let me, let me hit you first with that. I think some of them have very good intentions and are being sincere in their intentions, but I think they are at best naive about what technology can do for access to justice. Access to justice is a failure of public policy. It's a failure of the courts. It's a failure of law societies and bars. It's not a failure of technology and it's not a failure of the market. When we look to companies to provide access to justice solutions, we're really asking private industry to take a market-based approach to solve something that has nothing to do with supply and demand at all. Where we are seeing some technology innovations in access to justice, it's companies who are creating solutions for end users to circumvent the overly complicated, antiquated, or bureaucratic policies of the state. And I don't think that's right. I think that the state should be working with those companies to develop solutions, but we shouldn't be looking to private companies to overwrite court processes because they're so terrible. So what are, what are our pain points? I mean, to me, it's sort of like, where are we in society that says, all right, so where do we not leave, need lawyers anymore? Like, where do we have lawyers? Where do we not need or you could flip it on its head and start from zero and ask, where do we absolutely need lawyers and why? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, but where does technology come in and say, we could displace lawyers in this sense. And, you know, in, in our, in our notes, I was like, Hey, look, I, I really thought the thing concepts like Weavors or, uh, other uh, ODRs were going to just come in and like, oh my God, we're gonna have we're gonna have online dispute resolution, and we're gonna have game theory employed, and you know people are just gonna like ah, you know I don't even need a lawyer anymore. Like just sign up, and then you'll figure out uh, based on you know the survey questions, do you win or lose, and how much is it? And I love that idea because it just speaks to the 80s kid in me. Well, I mean, the insurance companies are kind of looking at things like that in terms of being able to evaluate insurance and what a claim will be worth. So they're, you know, there's, they're doing some things like that. And I think if a piece of technology can replace a $100,000 education, then we have much bigger problems with <laughs> the legal industry. <laughs> But it already has in some some respects, right? So right. Um, if you have, at, let's just look at Harris County, for example, in Texas, you have a slow-mo accident uh, under 15 miles an hour and you have two insureds, you're going to go to mediation. You're going to get sued. Somebody's going to like, oh, my neck hurts or I need specialized shots for my back or whatever it is. You're going to have to suffer through uh, litigation. Uh, you're going to have to suffer through mediation. 
And you're going to learn that uh, it's bracketed between ten to $50,000. And then somewhere it's going to come out to your insured maximum or medium, whatever, but probably fifteen dollars to $25,000. That's Guess what? That's what you're going to settle at. And you're not going to be happy, but you're going to be happy that you had insurance to pay for it. But that's what's going to happen. Like, why do we have to go through all of this if we can figure out a different way to solve that problem? And right now we have lawyers, thankfully, oh my God, thankfully we have lawyers uh, for us to help us with that situation and captive firms with insurance companies to help us with that problem. To piggyback on that thought, like when, when you look back, maybe in the last, you know, eight to 10 years, you know, there's been talk about how, you know, innovation, whatever that legal innovation, whatever that means, uh, you know, technology and alternative fees, predictable coding, predictive analytics, that was going to make the legal industry, <laughs> it's going to make it, you know, the industry much more efficient and somehow make prices go down and profits go up. And, you know, while we've seen a number of adjustments on the edges, what permanent changes have, you know, either of you seen take hold between, you know, say the downturn of the, the Great Recession and the downturn of the COVID pandemic eras? I mean, I don't know about permanent adjustments per se. I think it's just, and I don't even know if it has much to do with the recession at all. I entered into the legal profession at the tail end of the recession, and I don't really know what life was like before, but I think for big firms, nothing much really changed. Yeah, I think um, the, the the issue is, is everything was supposed to change, that but, but this was such it. a drastic adjustment in how legal services we're going to be delivered. Yeah, how is going to be delivered? We had firms that had, you know, we're over a century old that within weeks collapsed upon themselves. Yeah. And so everyone thought if we're not going to change now, we're never going to change. And here we are. And here we are again. <laughs> and I the thing I think that a lot of us worry about is that we're going to let this opportunity go away again. Are we just going to be right, you know, in 10 years, are we going to be right here again where you know, other than maybe whatever's new in, in social uh, media, you could plunk a lawyer from 2010 into 2020 and a lawyer from 2020 into 2030, and it wouldn't take them very long to get up to speed on how to practice law. So, you know, I, I would say, are we doing anything different or are we just chasing some kind of, of dream that eventually the, the technology is going to solve these problems? I think we like to think we're doing something very different. Um, the image of seeing judges together on a Zoom call, it feels very innovative. It feels very future looking. But if that's all that's happening, if we're not changing the underlying structural processes and the policies, then I think we probably are going to be where we are 10 years from now. Having a big firm create a new technology or deliver services a little differently really isn't going to move the dial. It's really about the state and the legal profession having the courage to fundamentally rethink 
how the legal system and the justice system are regulated. And if we continue to regulate it in the same way that we have for the past hundred years, then those same barriers are going to continue. Yep. Is that your answer, Jason? <laughs> Is well, that your final word on it? <laughs> no, I yes. mean, that's, I mean, I completely agree with Kristen uh, on this. You know, and and going back to, I want to go back to A to J, and I want to give a shout out to uh, John Mayer and and the folks that do uh, forms. I want to give a shout out to the states that that really um, uh, integrate, you know, state forms and have A to J questionnaires that facilitate sort of this uh, uh, question answer. Uh, on a pro se level that let me, you know, create forms that allow me to print papers and, and, and follow them with the court. Like I, we need more of that. And unfortunately, until we get buy-in from state bars to, to, to create mandated state forms, it's going to be a hard row uh, for all of us uh, that want that that reckoning. And Kristen, what do you think we need? What do we need more of? What do we need less of? Well, I think rather than looking at state forms, I think we should, well, first, I think we should question whether we need state forms at all or whether state forms in their current iteration are appropriate. You know, most court rules are exceedingly complicated and they are not designed for end users. They are not designed for self-represented litigants. And I think we need to have those forms represent that actually a lot of people coming through the courts right now, they don't have lawyers and we should stop pretending that they do. But I think what we need more of in terms of the industry, I think we do need a platform or some sort of environment where we can have these kinds of discussions, probably in an asynchronous way about the different facets of legal innovation, because I think the innovation that needs to happen for access to justice issues is very different than the innovation that needs to happen for the private bar. When we're talking about access to justice innovation, we cannot talk about it unless we have end users at the table, unless we have the courts at the table, unless we have the state at the table. So I think we need more dialogue there and we need more dialogue in the industry generally. Well, Jason Wilson and Kristen Hodgins, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us. I know it was a, it was a big topic, and I appreciate you uh, jumping in and, and uh, taking it on. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Marlene, I love these types of broad, open-ended discussions about a topic that so many of us feel like we're experts in. So, you know, and while I think both Kristen and Jason were aligned in that we have a process issue when it comes to tech and, and innovation, there's also all of these cultural and societal barriers throughout the industry. You know, there's no one answer on how to solve the legal tech and innovation uh, issues and how that should be structured and applied. So I guess the, uh, the typical lawyer's answer of it depends <laughs> really, really plays in here. Yeah, I mean, I think it's partially, okay, what, what is important? You know, is it access to justice? Um, is, it, is it more a business focus? And, you know, it's also one of these, one size is not going to fit all. That would be lovely. But, I mean, if it were that easy, we'd all be doing it. And I think, you know, different organizations are going to have different needs. 
And, you know, certain access to justice issues are maybe going to be more important than others. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was it was a good conversation. So, again, once again, thanks to Kristen Hodgins and Jason Wilson for joining us. Before we go, we want to remind listeners to take the time to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Read and review us as well. If you have comments about today's show or suggestions for a future show, you can reach us on Twitter at, at GayBauerM or at Glambert, or you can call the Geek and Review hotline at 713-487-7270 or email us at geekandreviewpodcast at gmail.com. And as always, the music you hear is from Jerry David DeSicca. Happy New Year, Jerry. Uh, thanks, Jerry. All right, Marlene. Well, uh, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you. Yes, Feliz Navidad and...